loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking gentrification. We're talking people living in walls. And we're talking yet another gimp mask? I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking about a pair of wonderfully campy performances in one of Wes Craven's, I feel like, lesser-known movies. Uh, We're talking People Under the Stairs today. Yes, we are. It's our second Wes Craven film in our camp marathon, which I don't think we realized when we programmed this. I don't think we did either, and I think we're in week five, six, six, six six of camp. Holy fuck. Um, We can't do eight-week marathons anymore. Mm Mm-mm. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. But before we dive into the film today, we do have a guest on the line. On the line? Is that, is that what we call it? Is it is it still a line? Yeah. Sure. He's, he's in Los Angeles. <laughs> we're not in the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're not in the room. But he's already spoken. However, our guest is a man of many talents. You've seen his... I'm uh, sorry. You may have seen his queer erotic photography series, All the Dead Boys. Or you may have watched his queer short film, Bug Crush. Or his queer full-length feature, Jamie Marks is Dead. And I certainly hope you've seen his amazing 2008 film, The Ruins, which I will defend until the day I die. Please welcome Carter Smith. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. I do want to point out, we, so we originally, here we go. (laughs) No, no, no. no. We, we we originally had you scheduled for Lake Placid, and then we had to move that. And then we had you on Good Manners, (laughs) and we had to move that. Yes. I am so happy to finally get you on this show because I'm going to like fangirl a little bit because I've been a fan of your work since 08. So I've been following your career for a bit and it's just, um, it's nice to have you on the show. Oh, well, it's very nice to be here. I have been listening since episode one. So I feel like I know oh, you shit. guys already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we don't always expect guests to listen to our show, but it's always a treat when they do. Well, I, I, I have not listened to every episode, but I have listened to most of them. I did not know that we were in the middle of a camp marathon, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, well, I, I think it's ours is one of those shows where it's like, obviously, the title of the episode is the movie. And if you haven't seen the movie, you don't really care about the movie. Like, we don't expect people to listen to those. So, you know, it just comes to the territory. Well, you yeah. may not. I expect everyone to diligently listen week oh, in fuck and week off. out. <laughs> okay. I have high expectations. I'm happy to be here for People Under the Stairs instead of Lake Placid or, I mean, I like good manners, <laughs> but I'm happy to be here for this one. No, yeah. I think it's a good one. And we, we learned the hard way that Lake Placid doesn't have a lot of things to talk about. No, yeah. poor Brian. <laughs> I feel like we should, re- we really need to go back and apologize to him for giving him such a dud movie. Um, you programmed that one, not me. I'm just saying. But I like Bridget Fonda and I will not apologize for that. Yeah, that's, she's great. <laughs> um, we could have done Single White Female. Anyway, not important. <laughs> so, yes, we are talking The People Under the Stairs, released on November 1st, 1991. I believe this is Wes Craven's film between, it was right, well, not right before, but it was his one film before New Nightmare, and I didn't look up his filmography, but I know... Uh-oh. It was a, a one film after Shocker. Shocker. There you go. There you go. Yeah, he was okay. He's firmly Shocker. in political... He's firmly in political territory, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't meant to be a controversial statement. <laughs> no, I was trying to think about Shocker, because I, 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 I marathoned... All of the my West Craven blind spots um, after he died. Uh, this right. was one of them actually, but I remember not loving Shocker, but I know it has a pretty loyal fan base. 
Yeah, I don't think it's one of his better films, but it's got some fun, weird stuff in there. To me, it always felt like a weird off-kilter child's play because it's the same kind of idea, only it's not a child's body. It's like telephone lines and stuff. Y'all, okay, so we're gonna get into it, but the whole time during this movie, I was like, this score sounds so familiar. It sounds so much like Child's Play 2. Lo and behold, the composer for this movie, Don Peake, also did the score for Child's Play 2. Okay. You got a good ear. Uh, yeah, that was 1990, so he, I, I think he was just feeling lazy in 1991 and decided to reuse the same score. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, um, no offense to Don Peak, I'm sure you're great. So, yes, uh, distributed by Universal Pictures, it is 102 minutes with a budget of $6 million. Now, I thought this was one of his flops, and it was not. Oh, this one's a big hit. I mean, yeah, it, it's... it's it, Yeah, it, it was profitable. Um, it opened at number one with $5.5 million, which, y'all, remember in 1991 when a movie could open in the number one spot with $5.5 million? <laughs> mm-hmm. The good old days. It went on to gross $24.2 million domestically, which adjusted for inflation, you're looking at $51.8 million. So, I mean, that's more than some Blumhouse movies make today. Yeah, not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, an uh, international gross of $7.1 million and fairly well-received, which, again, I don't know why I thought this wasn't well-received. You're looking at a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes, but, as we've discussed, older movie, fewer reviews. Uh, there's only 24 reviews for this, but an audience score of 58%. Hmm. No Metacritic score to speak of. What do we think of that score? That seems a little bit low to me, despite the fact that this film is very odd. Um, I think it's it's the kind of movie that you either love or hate. Like, it either grates on your nerves and you want to get away from it, or you embrace it fully and and love it for what it is. No? I think so. Um, what I've, and, I mean, again, this is a long time ago. I mean, a lot. It's uh, almost 30 years ago, right? No, yes, almost 30 years ago. <laughs> Fuck. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned, and Joe, you'll, you'll attest to this too, is um, there are it's a segment of horror fans that when there are political or social uh, or sociopolitical yeah. commentary in a movie, people tend to hate that, um, especially nowadays. <laughs> we get a lot of comments that are like, well, it was good until they brought politics into it. Why do all movies have to have social commentary? Why do all horror movies? And it's like, horrors always had social and political commentary? Like, maybe not yes. every movie, but the genre in general has. Arguably, all art is political. It's a matter of what kind of politics you're talking about. But yeah, the personal is political and filmmaking is an art. And I don't understand why people can't reconcile this idea. <sighs> Speaking of grading, things that I find grading. <laughs> no, I mean, it's... Fuck, I mean, I wrote this review for a movie that was a pro-life movie uh, recently at a Fantastic Fest, and of course, one of the first comments was, well, it was good until you said it was political with being pro-life. And I mean, I get it, you know, like, if you're pro-choice, like, I'm not going to get into that debate. But it was more the fact that it even had a political stance, period, not so yeah. much like of what the stance was. Yeah. Because people, I think, still identify film as a source of entertainment. And if all of a sudden you're engaging in any kind of debate or you're opposing people's religious beliefs, political beliefs, there's, I think, a segment of the population who can't, they can't have those elements in their entertainment because suddenly it no longer becomes entertainment. Despite the fact that, as I said before, you know, you can't get away from that. But also, why is debate or challenging material so scary to people? That's, I think, the thing that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know, man. Like, we're starting this off on a dour note because... I was going to say, we're going heavy. No, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So, this movie is fucking fun. This is one of my favorite Wes Craven movies, and I can't believe that I saw it so late in life. It's (laughs) bonkers. Yes, it is 
insane. Like the last like 15 minutes, even on this rewatch that I did this week, I was like giggling on the couch with glee, like every time something happened. It's so much fun and it's so ridiculous. And I wasn't a big Twin Peaks watcher. I've only seen like the first season and like a half. But man, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, why were they not in more things? Yeah, they're delightful in this film, particularly. You can tell that they're just having so much fucking fun. So much fun. Her, her especially, like, every single time she's on camera, she's, like, making the most of it and, like, relishing in, like, her craziness. She's chewing the scenery like no other. And she actually does have more to do because I feel like she's always the face of the house. I feel like Daddy doesn't really have, like, as much outside of running around in the gimp suit. But even, Mm -hmm. like, when she answers the door and, like, you know, there's, like, the little window that opens up. Yes, that look. That look. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) She's, like, surveying the scene. And then, like, before she closes it, she does this kind of, like... (sighs) <sighs> like a, I mean, like I, I'm like swaying away from my microphone right now, but it's really dramatic and it's really great. It's a little shady side eye. Yes, and I think that's where we'll get into the queerness of this film because there is no outright gay characters in this movie, right? Right, right. right. Uh, <laughs> I'm like second guessing right. myself. Well, it depends on how we want to define queer. Yeah, there's yeah. no same sex queerness in that. Right. But it's so over the top and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a horror comedy. Like, I don't, and maybe we'll get into this in a bit too. I don't really find this movie particularly scary. Even the people under the stairs themselves, I find them more comical than scary just with how they look. But I mean, that's up for debate. Yeah, but that that's just as much uh, because of when it was made, I feel like. And what, you know, it was sort of, I think they were probably scarier when the, when the film first came out. And it's only looking at them now do we sort of like see the seams and the, I don't know. I, I remember when I first saw it, I was really scared. And I didn't, mm. I don't remember it being a comedy at all. I mean, I watched it a long time ago when I was a kid, like on DVD or something. But only in rewatching right. it was I was like, oh, this is actually kind of campy and fun. Like I didn't, I don't remember any of those parts. Well, and I was watching this because I, I have the Screen Factory Blu-ray, and I was shocked at kind of the video quality because like, this was 1991, and it looks like just the look of the movie in, in terms of the film quality looks older. And I'm like, you know, you look at Scream in 1996 or even New Nightmare in '94, and I feel like those look like newer films that could have been made, if not today, but like later than where they were set or when they were made. Whereas this one, I feel like almost feels like a relic of the '80s. Hmm. I mean, it is on the cusp of it, right? 91, so it was probably shot in maybe like late 89 or in 1990, depending on how quickly he turned it over. Mm. But I don't know. I got like a a similar aesthetic vibe, not down to case-by-case comparison, but it reminded me a little bit of Demon Knight. It's got that functional set where they're really just using the entire house as a setting, but at the end of the day, it also still kind of has a bit of a set-like vibe to it, which is funny because as far as I know, the inside of this house is a real house because they shot Rob Zombie's Halloween in this same house. Do you think that the whole thing, the whole thing is the, is a real house, or was some of it built? I feel like the passageways were all well. I was gonna say, yeah, like constructed. Yeah, they, yeah. the tracking shots, yeah, th- those like th- through the walls had to be built. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, I'm guessing <laughs> you would know better than us, Carter. <laughs> I, you make movies and shit. <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were. It was definitely all built. I mean, I think that like the kitchen and some of that stuff. Those are the, that was a real house, and you know maybe the stairwell, but all that. All that basement and hallway stuff looked mm-hmm. pretty set-like to me. Every time I see this, I think that it would be, make such a good Halloween haunted house to like yes. get into the people under the stairs house. Like it would be such a good one. 
Well, when I posted that I was watching this, someone replied from L.A. and said that, like, they were somewhere and, like, they looked across the street and, oh, it was the house and people under the stairs, which maybe it was just the external shots, the exterior shots. But I think the setting of this movie is great. Like, I'm surprised it hasn't entered, like, horror iconography, which, as you said, Carter, I think it would make a great haunt. Yes, I will confess that the thing that I had forgotten about, because I've only seen this once before. I saw it very late, kind of like you, Trace. I think I saw it probably around the time Wes Craven died. I had completely forgotten that there were booby traps and passages and stuff. Like, I knew that people lived in the walls, but I thought that it was, like, people reaching out from the walls and grabbing at Fool and stuff like that. I didn't remember anything about, oh, yeah, you can get to somewhere by going through the stove or those cupboards lead to some other part of the house. Or, like, booby traps of spikes that close off passageways and stairs that turn into, like, ramp, like slides. Yeah. Oh, oh, amazing. When that first, because again, I mean, I, 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 what, when did Wes Craven die? 2015. So I watched this in 2015. So it wasn't that long ago. And I had forgotten so much of it. The ramp stairs is one of my favorite things in this movie. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and how it all pays off in the end with like all of them just emerging from the cupboards. But yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. Joe, maybe we should talk about the plot. And then we'll go into what I think is a pretty dense film, despite on the surface seeming just like a standard horror film. Sure. Okay. As always, feel free to interject at any point. Okay. So here is your plot for People Under the Stairs. And we're going to start off with a spoiler alert. If you have not watched this film recently, I'm going to tell you in advance that the dog does die. Oh, right. Sorry. Uh, we, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking of Cody Lamon specifically, but uh, yeah, it's not a good, it's not an easy death to watch, but it's also a really evil dog. So, okay, we'll, we'll quibble on that later. Sure. <laughs> so our main character is Fool, played by Brandon Quinton Adams, and he lives in the L.A. ghetto with his sick mama. They're three days late on the rent, so they're being evicted by their evil landlords who plan to tear down the block in order to build a condominium for quote-unquote clean people. <laughs> That's your first cue. If you didn't think this movie is fucking political as hell, white people are referred to as clean people. I mean, ah. <laughs> there's a lot more to it. Than, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot more clues than that. But yes, first clue, yeah. I'll get first it. First clue. It's an early clue. Yes. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Okay. So Fool's sister's boyfriend, Leroy, played by Ving Rames, who I'd completely forgotten was in this movie. Wait, you're leaving? You're just going to leave, like, his sister? It's Ruby. It's Kelly Jo Minter. Yeah, that actually doesn't mean anything to me, but I reference her later (laughs) when she actually plays an important part in the film. Okay, fine. Go ahead. (laughs) So Leroy offers Fool an opportunity to make money by robbing the Robson's funeral home, a.k.a. the landlord's. Uh, Is it Robson's or? I was going to say Robeson. Like the cough and cold medicine? The Robeson's? That's Robitussin's. Yeah, uh, no, it's Robeson, but you can just call them Mommy and Daddy. Okay. I think we should only call them Mommy and Daddy. (laughs) That's literally all I refer to them as for the rest of the... I think there's one other mention. I'll just remove that other mention. No, it's fine. It's fine. Mommy is played by Wendy Robson... Robbie? Roby. Wendy Robbie. Roby? There's only one B. (sighs) Fine. Learn English. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And Daddy, Everett McGill. So, Leroy's associate, Spencer, Jeremy Roberts, disappears in the house on a reconnaissance mission. Fool and Leroy venture inside and discover locked cabinet doors, impenetrable windows, padlocked doors, and booby traps aplenty. In the basement, Fool discovers Spencer's dead body, and he's holding a gold coin, and there's also a number of pale monsters who clutch and grab at Fool. He's saved by Alice, A.J. Langer, 
the prisoner daughter of mommy and daddy. And then he and Leroy electrocute Prince, the family dog, before Leroy is shot and killed by daddy. That's like a Looney Tunes type scene, by the way, when that when they all get electrocuted through the chamber. The electrocution? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, it was almost like from a kid's show. Like, it was like a crazy... Yeah, well, because Craven switches to a long shot for it, and so it's because like, you see all of them, and all of a sudden, like they, it's they're you know doing the wiggle dance, the electrocution yeah. dance, and then the dog just like drops. But I did appreciate that the dog doesn't die because I think that would have been too unbelievable. Like they could have survived a current, and the dog couldn't. So I like yeah. that the dog yeah. is just stunned. Yeah, I honestly had forgotten pretty much everything in this film except for the fact that there were people living under the stairs. Well, okay, they call them people under the stairs, and I get that later in the movie they emerge from the stairs, but really they're just people in the basement. Yeah. Yeah, but how do you market a film called The People in the Basement? Just like that. Boo. I don't know what to say. (laughs) That sounds like a studio executive was like, um, how about Under the Stairs? I can make a really good poster for that. Which also, we need to talk about the poster for this film. (laughs) It pays off when they come out from underneath the stairs later on. Oh, 100%. That's such a great way when that happens. It earns the title. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. The literal stair grab. It's pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so once again, Fool is saved by Alice, who shows him the house's secret passageway of greats. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's a real, like, um, oh god, well, uh, I'm trying to think, like, there's a bunch of movies that have come out in the past, like, ten years of people in the walls, which I guess we can talk about a little bit, but yeah, it's just, like, there's just room in the walls. Yes, yeah. The house is bigger on the inside than the outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's bigger on the it's bigger on the in-between than the inside. Right. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Again, does not flow as well. Can't market that. No, no, no. Alice relates that Daddy and Mommy were looking for a perfect son, but none were ever right, so they were caged up in the cellar. Daddy goes hunting for Roach, Sean Whalen, who is Alice's friend and maybe love interest. We'll see. We'll talk about that. And Daddy is wearing a full leather outfit complete with gimp mask, the second of such accoutrements to appear during our camp marathon. (laughs) So, God, we are having a good old leather time these last couple of weeks. Hey, if you're into kink, BDSM, by all means, enjoy it. For sure. I mean, I think we all wish the representation was maybe a little bit better, but uh, you take what you can get. It's 1991. He wears it well. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah, I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know that this would look good on somebody if they weren't as tall as Ed Wheeler. Yeah, you, you, that, that would not work. That would not work on someone short. <laughs> yeah, I love that I just called him Ed Wheeler. I know, so I was that's like, his name. Oh, okay, his name. is that his Twin Peaks character? Uh, his, his Twin Peaks character is Ed Hurley. Oh, where'd you get Wheeler from? I don't know. Okay. Well, so I was just, I mean, I was a little, not, not confused because it doesn't really matter to me, but like, he only puts that on when he goes hunting. So... Mm-hmm. I would love to know where that comes from. Yeah, it seems like the kind of detail... Well, I don't know. Maybe Craven talks about it on his commentary on the Blu-ray, but it's a very specific choice that I would like to know more about. Yeah, Yeah. it seems like it might have been a choice that was just like, it looks really cool and like it might not have a origin in the story. Like I was like, why is this Mm -hmm. his outfit for hunting? Like... I mean, yes, it looks amazing with him walking through those hallways like that, but... Does it? I, yes, it I does. thought so, yeah. I thought him, like, running around with that shotgun and that outfit looked kind of great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I concur. I also agree with that. I can't help but feel that it's meant 
to contrast between mommy's arch conservatism. So you're like, oh, they look so pristine and regular and like suburban on the outside. But then, you know, on the inside, ooh, he's really letting his freak flag fly. Yeah. Freak flag fly. God damn it. Why can I never say that? (laughs) Freak flag fly. Freak flag fly. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody say it five times quickly. We'll wait. I love how quickly he also gets in and out of that suit. Yeah. The police show up and all of a sudden he's out of it. Like as if it was just, you know, a quick little thing. I was imagining like a full Ross from friends, like baby powder and Vaseline situation where it like congeals into some kind of goop. (laughs) (laughs) You need somebody to unzip you in the back, maybe. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We don't know. People write in, let us know. Yeah, I've actually never worn a leather suit, so if you have, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, and you're comfortable telling us, uh, yeah, give us your insights. I'm dying to know. And pictures. I mean, what? Yes, insights. Okay. I feel like they're really expensive, too. That cannot be a cheap suit. Oh, no. no yeah, way. anybody who's involved in the leather scene will tell you, like, even just harnesses are pricey as fuck. Ugh. Yeah. It's an expensive fetish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay. After the police arrive, Mommy realizes that Fool is in the house, so they didn't actually even know that he was there up until this point. So that leads to a chase involving Daddy, Prince, and Roach, these names, who uh, Roach guides Fool through the walls to Alice's room, and they are then immediately apprehended, which was another little detail that I kind of loved. No, I I did too. Like the, the, it, This is basically a movie of constant cat and mouse. Which could get old fairly quickly, but it does a really good job of subverting your expectations about when things are going to go wrong. Yeah, because normally you wouldn't have these kids fall prey to the adults until well, well into the film. Like maybe even the climax where they actually have to come face to face. And instead, they're just up in each other's business the entire film. Constantly being caught and escaping and caught and escaping. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. I mean, it's because honestly, mommy and daddy are kind of like elmer fudd type caricatures of villains they are threatening like there is a threat because they they know the house inside and out but Mm -hmm. it's also like they haven't been able to catch roach for like how many years yeah (laughs) which is kind of hilarious because then they managed to do a fairly good job of getting at him when fool is there but fool is kind of like the the wrench he he, the the wrench in everyone's plans like they, they have mostly a not peaceful, but like a fine existence. Like they all have their own thing. Alice feeds Roach when she can, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's when Fool comes in that I guess I, well, they realize they, they can. there's a way out. I, I will confess. I, well, you haven't gotten there yet. So wait. So are you suggesting that white families are thrown into disarray when they encounter black people? Oh, my God. I just <laughs> my mind is blown. Blown. I tell you. <laughs> mm. No cultural commentary. Okay. Uh, where are we? So, Alice is forced to clean up Leroy's blood before she is bathed in scalding hot water. And, yeah, I think that's actually the hardest scene for me to watch in this entire film. Yeah, and then, and the fact that it's followed by that shot of the pit. Yeah. Where, where, uh, he gets thrown. Yeah, where Ving Rhames gets thrown. Mm -hmm. I was like, like, ooh, I forgot how visceral it is until that moment. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this, this is a little bit more intense than I remembered. Yeah, there's a lot of hard-hitting moments in this yeah. film, which is surprising because, as you suggested, Trace, it does often feel like a Looney Tunes kind of over-the-top comedy. Well, because, okay, so we go from this bathtub scene with with the excellent delivery of, you got blood all over your nice, clean dress that I tried so hard to make! And it took then, her all day to make that dress. It, uh, yes. And then you cut to Fool getting upstairs and punching Daddy in the dick. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> Although he is then apprehended, so he has to watch as Leroy's body is, is getting cut up and then left for the cannibalistic people under the stairs. And this is our first really good look at uh, the people these creatures are. Which, to be honest, having just watched The Loved Ones, I was like, wow, there's some very similar visual aesthetics going Ooh, on here. Ooh, that's a really good comparison. Mm. But do you think they're wearing masks, or do you think it's makeup? Well, I think it's makeup, but they're not meant to be wearing... Like, you're not meant to look at them that way. They're just meant to be, like, no, bleached. No, 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 no. But I, I meant from, like, um, from a filmmaking standpoint. Like, those, Yeah, those are those are prosthetics, I think. Okay. Like, not, so? maybe, maybe not full masks, I mean, but they're pretty heavy prosthetics, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, okay. There's still some movement in there. Well, because like, I feel like, they're, like maybe the chin, like the chin looked like very exaggerated for what were supposed to be children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They all looked a little old for what was supposed to be children. Yeah. I will say, I think <laughs> I think Fool, so Brandon Adams, I think he's the only one who really looks his age. Like if you know yeah. the ages of some of the other kids are like, uh, those are friendly adults. Yes. Or like very yeah. late teenagers. So Langer, who's Alice, she was 17 when this film, playing a 12-year-old girl. And then Sean Whalen, who's Roach, he was 27, playing a 15 or 16-year-old boy. Yeah. And he looks it. No, I think he looks. I think he, he looks young to me. Well, he's he had a like a rough life living under those stairs, so yeah, he has a re- he has a reason to look like that. <laughs> he's aged poorly. <laughs> well, yeah. Alice, they just put her in a dress. Like, okay, cool. She looks like she's twelve. We're good. Yeah, yeah. Just surround her by oversized objects and dolls. We're good. <laughs> Frilly curtains. Mm-hmm. I do want to shout out to my Sean Whalen though, because Never Been Kissed was a staple in my house growing up, and he is Drew Barrymore's assistant in that movie. Merkin ain't jerkin. He's working, and he's great. <laughs> He's a good comedic delivery. I feel like he acts a lot with his face in this film, and it serves him well. He has to. Uh, Okay, so Fool is once again rescued by Roach, uh, who was unfortunately at this point shot and then dies shortly after, which I forgot he died that early. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really thought he made it until nearly the end of the film. So did I. Clearly, we just have terrible memories for this film. So Daddy lights Roach's body on fire as Fool and Alice escape into the vents, and Prince the dog is stabbed through the walls after an extended chase sequence. And this is another one of those scenes where I thought, ooh, wow, this film could have taken a very different kind of direction because, like, Fool played this very unsafely, in my opinion. Trying to get the dog stabbed through the wall, I was like, you don't know where he's going to stab next. (laughs) Just me. So Fool eventually jumps off the roof into the pond below, and he escapes, leaving Alice alone to deal with her quote-unquote parents' wrath. Which is also really cool. Like, he gets out, and like, again... And there's still 40 minutes left of the movie. Yes! Yeah. You're like, wait a second, what's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, especially in so many films where typically they would just cut it off at this point. Like, you would have your dramatic confrontation, and then the film would end. Whereas this film... I mean, I think one of the reasons that this film works and is so powerful is because he has the chance to talk to people and then we get that climactic scene, which we'll get to in a yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at home, Grandpa Booker, Bill Cobbs. Estes from I Still Know You Did Last Summer. That's the only thing I know him as. Oh, okay. He's in a lot of stuff. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he relates the backstory of Mommy and Daddy and reveals that they are actually... Bum, 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 Brother and sister, and not husband and wife or romantic partners. Wait, hey, are we le- are we supposed to believe that they're fucking or that they're not fucking and they're just cohabitating? All right, I want to hear what you both think because I don't think that they're fucking. Do you, you think don't that they're think fucking? So. I I do. 
I think this is part of Craven's political critique is that he's saying these people are totally fucked up to the point of incest. Well, but maybe, and maybe that's why they steal children, though, because they don't want to have a child born of incest who might be not perfect from a genetic standpoint. They might equivocate that with being dirty, like the people of color in this film that they view. But, you know, it's kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know? Like, in his original script, Freddy's a child molester, but in the film itself, the final product, he's a murderer. But the implication is there. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if I really get the implication here, but I would buy it if they were fucking. Well, here's the thing. Bear in mind that Wes Craven is also the man who did... um... Describe the movie. It's uh, The Hillbillies. Hills Have Eyes. The Hills Have Eyes? Thank you. Yes. You you had, like, part of the title, right? There. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the Hillbillies Have Eyes. That's like the direct-to-video sequel. <laughs> the Hillbillies Have Eyes. Uh, I mean, he went that direction before, so I wouldn't have put it past Craven to give us a, a relationship that's kind of like that, but hidden under the veneer of, you know, civilized suburban domesticity. I will tell you, I am not a prequel person. I really hate prequels because I never care to see, like, how people got where they were. I'm like, well, we already know where it's going. What does it matter? I would totally watch a prequel that's just about, like, mommy and daddy's rise to prominence. How they got there, yes. That would be so much fun. (laughs) Played by, like, obviously, like, younger actors today, but, like, really fun ones. I don't know who it would be, but I just think that'd be really cool. Well, you both probably know this, but Wes Craven was actually working on a remake of this at the time of his death. It was one of multiple projects that he was looking into. (sighs) And I wonder, I think I read, don't quote me on this, but I thought that I had seen that he was thinking about doing it as a television series. And I wonder if it would have had more of that backstory or if it would have been a prequel. Because I don't know how you would do this story as an ongoing serialized story unless you had something more to work with yeah well, you can just have them like kidnap yeah. a child every week or something <laughs> the kidnapping of the week but it would mm. also follow that remake trend of like the mid-2000s to late 2000s where it was like hey we're gonna remake this movie but we're gonna also add all this backstory to it yeah they would have bates motel it or halloweened it or yeah. friday the 13th it or or nightmare on elm streeted it i don't like i mean like because all of those do that where they add like scenes of backstory or stuff and I think it would have worked here, but I also think with the premise of this film, it would be kind of fun to see it updated because it's also a movie where, like, a cell phone would easily fix some of these problems. And I guess we'll get into it when we're talking about just, like, how much belief you have to suspend to believe it. Because it's also, like, how did no one know these people were doing this? Oh, because they're white. Basically. And rich. Right? White and rich, yeah. That's what comes out when Grandpa Booker says this, is that everybody actually does know what's going on, including the police, but because of the people who are telling the story, aka marginalized people of color, Mm -hmm. whose, you know, opinions and voices are not perceived as worthwhile or valuable, they're basically just not believed, and as a result, nobody does anything about this weird house where children disappear and strange things happen all the fucking time. So... At this point, Fool does the thing that no one in horror movies ever does. Yeah. He calls the fucking police. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Fool. Yeah, which I love. I love that his name is both Point Dexter and Fool, and he's arguably one of the smarter characters in the film. I guess we didn't point it out, but his name is Fool because his sister Ruby reads tarot cards, and she na- they nicknamed him Fool after the card, the Fool. Yeah. Not important. Which does it. not actually mean Fool, but of course it also does. 
Yeah. Because yeah. he's foolish for getting sucked in by Leroy into doing this foolish plan of robbing. But these not people. foolish for going back to save Alice. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which is basically what he does next. So we see the police arrive at the house. They get wined and dined with cookies, and then they go on their merry way because they're all fucking idiots. But okay. But but the reaction that mommy has, where she's like, "Ugh, I never want to serve cookies and tea again." <laughs> Well, I love that she equates sweets with unhealthiness and as a result with, like, uncleanliness. You're just like, Jesus, you are so fucking biased. Like, (laughs) considering what you're doing to children in the basement, what a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so during the search, however, Fool has managed to sneak back into the house. So he frees Alice, and then Alice... Yep, go I ahead. was going to say, which which at first glance is really, really smart. And we're like, oh, cool. Because like there's that sh- like the, the, the dialogue with mommy and daddy going up the stairs where she's like, oh, I, I couldn't see the back door the whole time and like whatever. And so you think, oh, good, he's smart. But then no, <laughs> not really. We're going next into what you're saying. I was, I was cute. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sort of summarizing a bunch of stuff because it's just a lot of cat and mouse at this point. Mm-hmm. So Alice ends up saving fool sister Ruby. Kelly Joe Minter and Grandpa <laughs> when they show up to accuse Mommy of having like stolen from the residents of the ghetto and Mommy almost mows them down. But in addition to them, there's also all of the residents arrive on the front lawn. So they amass as a community to confront her. <laughs> Wait, can I read her line though? Because it's really funny. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't do her, like, her very distinctive voice, but um, here we go. Oh, but I want you to try. Please try. It'd be like my my, my Lindsay Lohan voice. I did just do it like this. <laughs> no, it would be funny. My name is Ruby Williams, and I represent the association of people who have been unjustly evicted, exploited, and generally fucked over. And then Mommy's like, what? It's like the Miss Peacock and Clue. What? And then Ruby, you and your brother are landlords over, of over 50 buildings in this city, all of which you've allowed to deteriorate into rat-infested hellholes while you guys get rich charging ridiculous rents. Then you evict anyone the minute they can't pay rent so you can tear down their homes and build some more office buildings. Isn't that about right? On the nose? Yes, but accurate. Pretty much, which, you know, never happens in modern day contemporary society. <laughs> Not at all, no. <laughs> well, that, but we'll talk about Craven, but that's the thing. So many of his movies are like way ahead of their time, or they're actually timely, but people don't realize it at the time. And I feel like later is where you really, like, we see it with Scream 4, the relevancy of everything he's trying to do in his movies. Mm-hmm. The timeliness, which is also somehow future forecast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, in the basement, the people save Fool from Daddy, and Fool discovers a room that is literally filled with money. I've never seen a live-action <laughs> version of the Scrooge McDuck room, but this is this is it. I expected Fool to dive in, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. The people attack Mommy when she tries to kill Alice, and this is the part... I feel like if you're probably going to see clips from this movie, it's going yeah. to be this scene, because it's just literally people coming out from every crevice so of good. the frame to the attack mommy the, yeah <sighs> love it so good i mean it pays off like because the people don't have a lot of screen time in this movie mm-hmm. they're, they're not no. there you know they're there. you know they're eating things there's some great shots of cannibalism and like empty rim rib cages but this ending sorry, empty rim cages no. rib... <laughs> i do love a good rimming uh, all right <laughs> What? Uh, but, no, the, 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 it pay, it pay, the climax of this movie pays off in dividends. It's so fun. It's so cathartic. And it's just, it looks like everyone involved was having, I think we've already said this, but like everyone was having a blast making this. 
I will say this to me confirms that mommy is also the true villain of this film. Like she is the one who is more firmly in charge because her death is not only more satisfying, but it is so much grander and bigger. Like I almost found daddy's amusing, but I found mommy's is like the highlight of this film. Yeah, for sure. Well, and also she like, she seems to have like a certain sort of, power over him like in that you know, in that moment when they've got alice chained up and he's on his way in and she's like daddy mm-hmm. stop yeah. get back here like you sort of sense that she's the one with the you know in the driver's seat of the relationship no mm-hmm. absolutely because she's always ordering him around and he orders the dog around it's a chain of command yeah. from dog to daddy to mommy which just goes to show that if you want a happy life happy wife sister Yes. And and I love their little intercom system. And when Alice tries to use it and the mom's like, you didn't think I'd make it that easy for you, did you? It's so good. (laughs) I'm just giddy talking about her. This is basically the original Halloween haunted house. It's filled with all kinds of trapdoors. It's got an intercom system where you can berate and terrorize people. It's got switches (laughs) to automatically lock doors and turn stairs into slides. People will grab you from a crack in the wall. Oh, man. <laughs> Hollywood, make this happen. Oh, wait, yeah. was it was it Halloween Horror Nights? Maybe. Maybe it was. Maybe. Hold on. You keep talking. Okay. What? Oh, he's going to check to see if it ever actually was. Oh, it wasn't this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe in 1992. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, you guys. The people under the stairs. Hold on. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Halloween Horror Nights 2, The People Under the Stairs. Do you have a year on that? I'm looking. This is oh oh 1992. So it was one of the original nice. Halloween. Yeah, the year after the year after it came out. Wow. Okay. Well, if it was a hit, it made a lot of money. So I guess. Yep. I didn't know that they went back that far. Yeah, I really didn't know. But yeah, so that's pretty neat. Okay, so now I have a special request. In addition to leather gear, which you can send us, you can DM Trace and he'll send them on to me afterwards. <laughs> I would like to know if we have older listeners, if you happen to attend that, I want a full fucking recap of what it was like. And if you work at Halloween Horror Nights and you want to pay for me to go there, I'll go. (laughs) You'll give it a positive review? Yeah, I'll give it a positive review. I think our editors get to go, but... I can't. I can't do it. Really? There's a couple of haunt-like things here in Toronto. So they do one at Casaloma, which is where Ready or Not was filmed. Mm-hmm. So they do one around the grounds of the castle. And they have another one that's at our theme park that's just outside the city where like people actively chase you around the park. And I cannot do either one of them. I can do scares on video. I cannot do real life, even if it's fake chainsaws and people in prosthetics and makeup. Can't do it. No. It fucking oh. freaks me out. The Universal Horror Nights, though, I mean, it's fun. It's not exactly scary, but it's fun. Is that like where you just go through a maze or something? And Yeah, you kind of go through a maze and the things, you know, there's big sound cues that startle you and people pop out, but nobody grabs you. Nobody, you know, it's it's not actually all that frightening. So it's more like thrilling than it is like terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and for the most part, usually you're in there with so many other people that like half of the scares end up getting lost on you because it's so crowded. Yeah. Oh. Which is kind of a bummer. That doesn't sound like fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's silly. If you get there early when it first opens up and you're the first one in the house, then then it could be super fun. Right. Okay. Good advice for we people digress. who are considering it. Yeah. <laughs> 1992 Halloween Horror Nights goers, please let us know how people under the stairs was. Yes. So we're almost done. So basically, everybody comes <laughs> out of everywhere, grab mommy, 
Alice actually stabs her in the abdomen. So this 12-year-old girl stabs mommy. Very, uh, yeah, very cathartic. And then we don't see it, but we see the result. So mommy's throat ends up getting cut and her body is tossed down the stairs. And then Fool so, ultimately... Hmm? I was going to, like, not argue with you guys about her death. It is the better death because the daddy blowing up is just whatever. I hate blow-ups and I hate guns. I wanted body parts. I think if we had have seen <laughs> bits and pieces of daddy blowing up, I would have enjoyed it more. The aftermath, yeah. We do get Alice stabbing Mommy, which is great, but we don't see the killing blow of Mommy. We just see her kind of yeah. get swarmed by them, and then when her body goes down, it's almost... Her throat isn't ripped out, but her throat is definitely, like, clawed open a bit. And I Yeah, it was almost hard it. to say. That's why I said it's cut, because I couldn't tell if it was meant to be done by teeth. Is that done by talons? Is that done by the knife that she has pulled out of her abdomen? It's just a little unclear. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, this this film has gory parts to it, but for some reason, Craven does pull back in these final kills, mm -hmm. which is interesting creative decision. I'm not sure I understand yeah. it. We get like Roach using fucking Ving Rhames as a puppet, <laughs> which is great. And then and then, yeah, those shots of them eating people, which is great. But yeah, I, I would almost say that, yeah, the, the gory scenes, they don't feel out of place, but they're so minimal in this movie that it's almost like you probably could have made this PG-13. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if this was a sign of the times as well, right? I mean, at this point, yeah. we were in a slasher recovery mode in between the two cycles. And this is kind of firmly in the middle of when people were starting to say that horror sucked because, yeah, we were getting more shocker than people under the stairs. Yeah. 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 No offense to people who like Shocker. Okay, no, so Fool ultimately blows up both Daddy and the house, showering money on the community gathered outside. And that's basically where the film ends. What about the people under the stairs who wander out onto yeah. the streets? <laughs> like, as the money is raining from the sky, and they wander out through the crowd, and no one seems to notice. That's the best. They're just like days survivors. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I say, okay, and they don't try to eat anyone because again, they've been raised eating human flesh, mm -hmm. and that's really all they know. But they're also like good, sympathetic monsters, like they're, they're like a Frankenstein monster. But yeah, like, I don't think that they maybe they don't know where the, the their food comes from. Maybe, maybe. they just think that it's food. That's true. Also, yeah, I mean, we never actually see them kill anyone. Well, but like when when mommy. when Daddy has has him strung up, he was eating a piece of him. Like it was, it wasn't. An, yes. Like, like his, he's got the blood on his mouth, and I and I saw, I read or saw like a Q and A or something that where they talked about that was the one shot that they had to cut to get the R rating was him, him actually eating a liver. Yeah, of Daddy eating a liver. Well, because oh. he was also eating somebody in that opening scene when we first get introduced to yeah. him in the den too, right? With the buckshot. Yeah. Okay. Shit, I missed that. I mean, I, I caught the second, I caught the first one that Carter mentioned, but I, I didn't catch the opening scene, the opening introduction. Yeah, because I remember he's got blood around his mouth when he turns to talk to mommy. Yeah. Mm. Which is funny because I missed the second one. So something about this movie causes fugue states. <laughs> so before we Cannibal start... confusion. <laughs> before we start getting into analysis, I wanted to point out one random fact that I just noticed that I put on my notes. Hilary Swank auditioned for the role of Roach because Roach was originally um, written to be either male or female. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. Which, to be honest, to me, changes the film quite a bit. For better, for worse. Well, I think it depends on whether you believe that there's a romantic connection between Roach and Alice. Uh, Alice. Yeah. I personally believe that there is. Because it's one of the reasons that they hate Roach so much is that she has developed feelings towards one of the undesirable people that they have cast aside. Yeah, I buy that. 
I don't know if I fully... I, I view it more as a friendship, like a very tight bond between them. But, mm-hmm. I mean, they're children. Also, I mean, if she's supposed to be 12 and he's supposed to be 15 or 16, I don't know. But... <laughs> but they're I, not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it does change the dynamic, though, because, yeah, if it's Hilary Swank, a pre-Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Hilary Swank, mind you, it's definitely more of a sisterly bond. And, I mean, well, or then we could have our queer element. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. This is the time when that kind of stuff wasn't really done, though, right? Like, you're not going to give a role that could go to a man to a woman in right. 1991. Even though yeah. Wes Craven was often quite ahead of his time in that regard. Mm-hmm. You also, having the lead of the film be a 13-year-old boy, like an R-rated horror film, like, how mm-hmm. often does that happen? You know? Yeah. And a, a person of color, too. Like, that's insane. I mean, again... I support it. I'm not saying that's bad. (laughs) But it's just like, it's not something you would see. But here's the thing. So this film, and this is me once again remembering, but don't quote me on it. If I remember correctly, Craven had, he had authority over what kind of film he wanted to make. So I think at this point, he was in a position of substantial power. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at it, if you don't have a black lead in this film, and if he's not a child, this film ceases to exist. Like the film is inherently built around the fact that it is a person of color and that it is a child. That's the only reason that the entire story works. So if somebody had to come back and been like, "Mm, can it just be a little white boy? It's like, no. Yeah. You know, too, I wonder if just like the general landscape of cinema at the time, because like Do the Right Thing is like 1989. Boys in the Hood came up the same year. New Jack City was the same year. Uh, there's Minister Society two years after this. I wonder if maybe it's just like the general, like the 89 to 94, where it was just a lot of like, you know, like black cinema was really on the rise. So this is horror's response. Response to that, along with Candyman, maybe. But like in that one, you have him as the villain, whereas this one, it's like your protagonist. Although I would argue in Candyman's defense, and we'll get to this in the later episode right. at some point, because you know I'm going to be talking about that shit. I know. Don't say it like that. Candyman. Uh, I've only seen it once. I need to rewatch it. I didn't think it was. Yeah, that you good. fucking do. I know. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. But Candyman has a very different relationship to race and poverty and the quote unquote ghetto, which is one of the reasons that that film goes back and forth between being upheld as a positive signifier and something where people say the depiction of race and income and the relationship between black characters and white characters is problematic. Whereas I think in this film, I was actually shocked to see that Craven didn't write this with anybody else because it's got a really adept understanding and it's not afraid to cast basically like the white people are almost uniformly bad except for Alice. Yeah, yeah, you're actually right. That's shocking. Like he's critiquing the police for being really stupid idiots and he's got these rich white people who in any other film would be like oh they own property they have a small local independent business these would be heroes in any other film of the time except for those people under the stairs except for those little people under the stairs all right let's say this movie's made today do you think they're getting a white director they're not right Um, like that that's not something that would happen today i don't feel like probably not I don't think it would be a smart decision. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the number of straight male directors who make lesbian horror films, there are a lot of people who still think that they can tell other people's stories, and sometimes they do it well. But I think in today's society, no, I think you you would definitely reach out and say, hey, if we're doing a remake of this, we want an authentic spin, like a fresh, authentic spin on it. 
Well, and that's the thing too. And I, I really wish I would have listened to Craven's commentary to see like if he if he mentioned any research that he did, if he talked to anyone. Because yeah, this is a black story written and directed by the same white man. And mm-hmm. granted, I think it's good, but also me being a white man, I mean, I don't have the um, the frame of mind or the the, the positioning or the whatever to yeah. to really say, oh yeah, that's authentic. Yeah, yeah. So. Is it valuable to do the backstory of how he came up with this story? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So there's two different explanations that he's provided. One is that he had a dream, which is like, so, okay, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that was Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street. Sure. That's the like, same fucking thing. <laughs> or you could choose to believe version two. <laughs> right. Which is that he actually read a story about rich folks who they had the cops called on them because there were two black people that were reported being suspicious and possibly breaking into their house. And when the police went to investigate, they discovered that they had been abusing the children and locking them in the basement. And Craven was apparently fascinated with this idea that there was, in a way, very Lynchian ideas that people who live in the suburbs, who have the seemingly perfect life, and it's all a facade. And the minute you start to dig beneath the surface, what you actually discover is that they're hiding this multiplicity of sins and weirdness and all kinds of subversive behaviors. Mm -hmm. I choose to believe that explanation. Because, yeah, when you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, right, he's also like, oh, it was because of gamers that, you know, died because they stayed up too late and they supposedly died in their sleep. No, wait. I mean, am I thinking of something else? No, I think that is something else. I thought he was, it was like, it was in a foreign country where someone was like dying from like being like too, like like having a bad nightmare. I I don't know. It's not a Nightmare on Elm Street podcast. It's fine. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, but, but also that story is legitimately scary. Because, Carter, you said that when you first saw this, you did find it very scary. And you didn't remember the comedy. So I'm interested to see, like, maybe from your perspective, like... <sighs> like, what's changed? Yeah. Well, you know, I probably saw it, like, sometime in the early 90s, maybe. And I, I think that just the, you know, the ideas of it were so scary. And the, you know, those the moments of violence, somehow that's what stuck with me. I, I don't remember mm-hmm. it being campy at all. And, I and like, I don't know where that went like how how i i sort of didn't hang on to that part but i may you know maybe it's because i was a young gay and i didn't quite understand camp yet well right <laughs> i think though camp is something that has become well obviously as we like we discussed like the met gala this year camp has slowly become more and more mainstream and movies that were campy back in, in the 90s that were criticized upon release drop dead gorgeous are now being appreciated <laughs> for their camp aesthetic but also, just like the idea of this movie, you know, it's it's children that were stolen from birth that are being kept underground and being fed human flesh. Like the mere sentence of that, the description of that is scary. Yeah. And they are kind of like when the hands first come out, like I think the first scene when um, Fool goes into the basement is actually pretty tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, but, the, but then it's juxtaposed with mommy and daddy, which are just larger than life performances and way more frightening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's the coolest thing that Craven does with this film is that even the title makes you believe that the creatures or the villains of this film are going to be the people under the stairs. Yeah. And really, it's like, no, it's those two fucking white idiots over there who are <laughs> hoarding money and acting like ridiculous caricatures of Twin Peaks characters that they played two years before. Yeah. Those are the villains. They're hiding in plain sight. <laughs> You'd mentioned, Joe, something that you wanted to comment on the poster for this movie. What what was your issue with the poster? 
I just think it's hilariously misleading. I mean, we could do endless numbers of episodes that are actually more ridiculous in terms of the way that they were advertised. But I love that the poster is like this giant skull over a house. Because I remember when I first saw the film, like I thought it was going to be a zombie film. Mm. What, I mean, it's it's kind of a zombie. It's got zombie vibes to it. Like, you know, they're it's very true. zombie, those, those guys or girl guys. I think all guys, yeah. They're all guys, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, because they, want, they wanted a boy. But they yeah. kept Alice for some reason? I don't remember the reasoning for keeping Alice. Because she adhered to their the rules, strict the rules. Demands. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Well, mm-hmm. and actually, no, I think the most striking image in this movie is when Roach reveals his tongue, and he, like, plays with it. I think that's a really terrifying, but at the same time, it's kind of played for laughs, or, like, maybe not yeah. laughs, but, like, it's... It almost feels like it's out of a fun Disney movie, but it's about a severed tongue. Well, I think it's meant to be horrifying, but then he has grown so accustomed to it that it's rendered less frightening and more of just a, oh, okay, well, we're not going to be able to hear this person talk because he just doesn't have that. Which, (laughs) as a, a quick medical aside, you don't lose your ability to talk if you don't have a tongue because the thing that produces your voice is actually your larynx, which is in your throat. Larynx. Like the more you know. Larynx. 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 Yeah. There's, there's no... No, it's larynx. It's Y-N-X. It's not oh my N-Y-X. God. Sweetie. I think you have dyslexia. <laughs> it's it's all jokes. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> you correcting is less funny than just going with it. I'm, re- I'm trying to look out for you so you, people don't come after you to be like, why can't you speak? Except literally no one ever has. Anyway. <laughs> um, but no, I think he chooses not to speak. No. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Okay, now I'm combating that. It's fine. Whatever. So at the time when this film was released, apparently it did not get a great critical response. I don't think, A, that people understood. They didn't see the comedy and the horror working well together. I think we can have a greater discussion about whether or not this film truly is camp. I actually just found it funny. But I do also think that it's kind of hilarious that this film doesn't try to hide the fact that it's being politically subversive on its sleeve. Like, there is no subtext about race in this film. It is literally all text. And I don't think that people understood that when the film came out. Or do you think it's just that they were they were expecting a straight up horror? Do you think they were expecting something else, and that's yes. what what threw yes. people? The, the comedy and the camp sort of threw them. Yeah, if you look at reviews as a general consensus, they're saying mm, this isn't Nightmare on Elm Street. What's yeah. happened to Wes Craven? Yeah. Um. So I was trying to get the tag. I didn't watch the trailer for this movie, but I was trying to get the tagline. But it's um. Oh, the trailer's awful. Oh God. I mean, trailers in the nineties. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, in every neighborhood, there is one home that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of Nightmare on Street, takes you inside, but then it's like dot, 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 but it's like, then it's the people under the stairs. So he's taking you inside the people under the stairs. Mm, mm. There's a queer take. Yeah. <laughs> but I think when discussing... Oh, daddy, with your leather outfit. <laughs> I think when discussing this as camp, though, I mean, because again, we, we've debated or discussed the meaning of camp, you know, whether it's badness, intentional badness, or if it's shit that has been reclaimed later. And I never for once thought this was bad, especially again, when we're coming off of Cursed a couple weeks ago, which is a legitimately bad film. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Jason Goes to Hell cursed right texas chainsaw massacre the next generation like these are the definition of camp horror and then you see something like this which is smart and clever and like the script is legitimately funny like there are so many good jokes in this movie 
I mean, I know we programmed it under Camp Marathon, but I don't know that I would call this camp. But do you, but are you are you equating camp to being somehow not smart? <clears throat> I more often associate the camp that is unintentionally funny yeah with being less smart because it's kind of like it hasn't meant to do that it's just been identified that and embraced by audiences as such and this was so intentional and it was so obviously intentional all of that exactly that element yeah like i think you could look at the performances of mommy and daddy and say okay there's your camp element because they are so over the top right but Mm -hmm. even that I think as part of the critique, right? It's look at how bat shit insane these people are and they still manage to get away with it, which is why it's so smart to then have grandpa be like, yeah, everybody knows what's going on, but nobody believes us. Yeah. Like, how could you even interact with these people? How could you be fooled by them? All it takes is her serving you a platter of cookies. How dumb are you? Okay, maybe the movie doesn't fall into camp, but I think there are plenty of campy elements. So, I mean, you know, saying it is camp or things are campy about it, I think that works. Because, I mean, hey, I'm sorry, gimp gimp suit, that's like a legit term. That's not like an offensive term. It sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's what it's called. Okay. I think so. I believe. Oh my so. god! Well, if, if we're just offending someone, please let us know. It yes. just doesn't. Please it, educate us on your fetish yeah. if this appeals. It doesn't or sound to. right to me. But but yeah, that entire. I mean, like we discussed earlier. You know, that's a choice. Why why that? That is a deliberate choice. And I think having everyone else in the movie be like on a whole like another level, or I'm sorry, I guess on a much lower intensity, like a more level, straightforward. Yeah. Yes. Compared to Mommy and Daddy, which it's like, I'm trying to think of something. It's like, not like an Annie Wilkes type character, but like, uh, what's a character that, you know, like, uh, that, or, oh, or like Parker Posey in that movie, The House of Yes, where she dresses up like Jackie O constantly and she fucks her brother. Mm-hmm. That, like that. It's kind of like that. <laughs> I, f- but I feel like there's a lot of different movies. Like, the, like Mommy and Daddy are in one movie. Fool is kind of like in this, like comedy slash kids adventure movie yes and then alice and roach yeah total goonies and then alice and roach and the people under the stairs are like in a west craven movie yeah yeah they're basically living a day-to-day hell yeah (laughs) and then fool comes in and is just like hey i'm here for some money and also these people are crazy it's that combination though that i think maybe didn't work for people back then because yeah Yeah. you're right it it does feel like three different movies but in this case i think they mesh very well together to where Mm -hmm. it makes for a movie that is not only entertaining but quite smart both in its commentary and just in its basic narrative structure yeah yeah the only real complaint that I have with this film, and this kind of goes against what you mentioned off the top traces, I do feel like the end of it just, it takes a little too many, like, let's run through the passageways, let's hide in the grates kind of deal. I think it loses a little bit of momentum heading into that climax because it's mm-hmm. just a touch too repetitive. Yeah. But it's tricky because you need to allow that break of him escaping and then coming back in order to build everything back up. Yeah. So I don't know. But when they come back, I mean, they do end up in the chimney. They, that's when the stairs thing happens. Oh. So it's like you're, you're, not, you're not always in this, at least in the same exact spaces when, they, when Fool comes back. I this will say, true. though, that chimney shot was filmed very goofily. Mm-hmm. And 
I was like, wouldn't he like scrape the fuck out of his hands, like sliding down the chimney like that? It was really like, landing right on her face like yeah. that. The two of them, yes. like that was amazing. <laughs> and she just kind of pulls out like, yeah. hmm, these kids. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> or or when mommy's at the door, and is it Alice? Just like falls on her from the falls ceiling. Falls from the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, because she interrupts her because no, she goes, "There's no community here. All I see are a couple of nit," and then she yeah. falls, <laughs> and it's damn, you knocked that bitch cold. <laughs> That fall from the ceiling is very impressive. I don't know if Craven sped that up. No, but he did. She looked he like totally she did. rocketed yeah. out of the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing though. That that's campy because it's giving it this cartoon vibe that is not normally in movies like this at all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but then moments later you've got Alice literally stabbing her in the gut. Yeah. That moment, like, I felt it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's shocking whiplash. And I think, again, this is a testament to Craven's ability to stage and shoot violence and drama. You're right, Trace. I think the balance really, really works. But it's crazy to think that one moment we've got slapstick mayhem and political commentary, and then you shut the door and it's like, we've got serious knife wounds and people like ripping this woman apart. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. But I can totally appreciate why people might say, mm, it doesn't really work for me as a yeah. result. I had to go back and look because, I mean, again, after your dad, I ranked all of his films for Bloody. I ranked this film number five, man. Like, I, I, I love this movie. I think it's top tier Craven for me. So originally that was going to be one of the games I was going to propose at the end was kind of like, where do you rank this? Although that's not really a game that's a rank. So <laughs> if either of the two of you want to have at it. Trace, I'm guessing it's Scream 1 through 4, and then people <laughs> under the stairs. So, wait. Well, hey, wait. I okay, First of all, I put Nightmare on Elm Street first, because I was like, if I put Scream 2 at the top of this list, people are going to, like, kill me. Revolt, yeah. Yeah. But it's Scream 2 really is my number one. Obviously. Then Nightmare, then Scream, then New Nightmare. New Nightmare. And mm-hmm. then people under the stairs, and then Scream 4. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. No, no Hills Have Eyes? I actually think the remake is a better movie. Yeah. I will say one that there was a blind spot that I saw later um, during this marathon that I really liked and I put it at number seven was Deadly Blessing. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed Deadly Blessing. Yeah. Oh, Hills Have Eyes is number eight, so I gave it a better score. I actually think Last House on the Left is pretty low on my list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, it's a very it's important movie. film, but it's not... Yeah, it's a little tedious to watch. Yeah. I'm not eager to revisit well, it. Oh, wait, Joe, that's a good comparison, though, because that's a movie, though, where the score is, like, goofy, dueling banjosy, juxtaposed with graphic violence and rape, and I don't think it works in that movie. No. And if people want to listen to our thoughts on it, we did actually record our thoughts in a Patreon episode when we talked about the Last House on the Left remake, Mm -hmm. celebrating its 10th anniversary. Yep. Yeah. So, Carter, where would this fall in Craven's oeuvre for you? Uh, I would say, I mean, after watching it again, it would probably be notched up higher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am a fan of Hills Have Eyes. I'm a fan of Scream. I'm a fan of Deadly Blessing. (laughs) You know, Nightmare, of course. Yeah. But to me, like, I... I like this more than Scream. Really? I don't okay. I, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, wait, hey, how old are you, I think you, it's Carter? a riskier film. Yeah, it, it was, I, think it's, I think it's riskier for sure, but I graduated high school in 89, so I was 17 okay. when I saw this, or no, maybe yeah. 18. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is 91, so yeah, and I was born in 89, so I think it's also, also about like... <laughs> so I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just Trace's baby. No, days. but I, I think yeah. I think it's all of us about like like where this took place in your youth. Because you know, for me, yeah. like I saw Scream when I was fourteen years old. That was two thousand three. So I grew up with that. I didn't grow up with this movie. And yeah. I also yeah. think the difference is though that Scream, even though Craven directed it, 
he didn't write that. That's Kevin Williamson. This yeah. is this is fully Craven's baby, and I want to say I read somewhere that there was very little studio interference with this movie. Yeah, that's what I read too. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant when I said he had a lot of control over the way that things unfolded. Mm-hmm. This is the film he wanted to make. And as we saw with uh, Cursed and Scream 4, like a lot of times studios got into his shit. But then also, I mean, thank God Scream 4 was made, because if he didn't make that, his last movie would have been My Soul to Take, which he wrote and directed. Yeah. And his writing misses the mark completely in that movie. Weird things happened to Craven late in his career. I've, I've always wondered how much creative control he had over some of those, like, Wes Craven Presents films, because yeah. those are all piles of shit. I've heard Wishmaster's fun. No, Wishmaster is great, <laughs> but, I mean, hey, we could have slipped out any one of these films for Wishmaster during our camp marathon. I know we'll never do it, but I would love to do Red Eye one day. I think Red Eye is one of those ones, the later Craven ones, that is always, like, forgotten. Oh, yeah, Red Eye is great. Red Eye is totally. great. It's really yeah. good. I think it falters a little bit in the last act. But no, that's good. that's when it becomes a slasher movie, and that's when it gets good. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, something compelling to me about trapping people in seats next to each other on a plane. Like, it's almost a theatrical like yeah. a drama yeah. i just love that riskiness okay well so okay before then we get into the real game oh actually joey wait where does this rank for you uh to be honest i've seen less west cravens than i probably should have so i haven't seen a lot of his early stuff and i haven't seen some of the later stuff so for me i've seen almost all of his really good stuff have you guys uh seen serpent in the rainbow i have i totally forgot about that i haven't people love it i rewatched it i mean sorry i watched it with my marathon because that was another blind spot for me i i didn't love it i thought it was fine i yeah. think it's one i need to rewatch to fully appreciate i just i remember not finding bill pullman a very compelling protagonist and the voodoo stuff yeah. which i mean again I, I don't know if he wrote it i'm gonna tell you <laughs> but that's another one uh no that's written by two men no but yeah Again, it, it's about voodoo. I mean, it's kind of like the, um, uh, what's the James Bond movie? The Live and Let Die, where it's set in New Orleans yeah. and it's a bunch of voodoo. It's like the Live and Let Die of Craven's like, filmography, because it's just like, it's all about African voodoo. Yeah. I don't love it. It's not my favorite. Fair Carter, enough. does that Fair mean enough. you like it? I did like it. I mean, also, like, that came out, it was around the same time. Yep. I, I was in high school. I wrote my, like, senior English paper on the toxic frogs and mushrooms that explain zombies and voodoo so i, I was like super ah. <laughs> nice. so like it has a special spot for me i think okay what well, anyways I, I will tell you because when i did my marathon i was watching them like watching my blind spots in order so i did deadly blessing then i did swamp thing then i did hills have eyes two then it was deadly friend and then it was serpent in the rainbow <laughs> so maybe yeah, so it was just exhausted like <laughs> i think i was point. a little exhausted and yeah right. and then it was shocker then it was people under the stairs and then it was oh wolf vampire in brooklyn Oh. I, have, I haven't seen that yeah. it's boring that's the problem with it it's not really trying to be funny or scary and so therefore it's just neither one yeah. but yeah. it does have its fans I think for me that might be his worst film minus the porno he did before Last House on the Left <laughs> have you seen that? <laughs> yeah I did uh, it's, just a, it's, just, it's just a porno <laughs> it is what it is it's called The Fireworks Woman y'all can oh wait I'm sorry that was after Last House on the Left he did Last House on the Left and then The Fireworks Woman and then The Hills Have Eyes <laughs> Such a weird filmography. Credited as Abe Snake for the Fireworks Woman, by the way. <laughs> Abe Snake. Nice. <laughs> nice. So wait, Joe, what was yours? Um, uh, I'd probably put it behind the screams and the nightmares, and then probably put this. Well, he only did one nightmare. I mean, he wrote the third one. Oh, wait, wait, new nightmare. Fuck it. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, you just listed a bunch of films that I don't love or I haven't seen, but I do think there's a lot more hits than misses on Craven's resume. Mm -hmm. And you can't say that for a lot of people. Yeah. John Carpenter, I love well, you, but holy no. shit. So yeah, because I did the same thing for John Carpenter a year later, and I was like, yeah, I think Craven has more hits than misses than John Carpenter has hits. And Although, I get to see Big Trouble in Little China for the first time when I did that. <gasps> oh my god, that movie is so fucking good. That is one of my favorite movies of all time now, because it's just so fucking fun. But anyway, yeah. we'll do... Oh, we'll do that one day. That's going to be a fun one. Oh, I was going to counter and be like, oh, we're going to, I'm going to make you do Vampires of Mars or whatever the. Ghosts of Mars. Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> wait, wait, there's John Carpenter's Vampires and there's John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. One there of them is a decent movie. One of them is not. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to make us do Ghosts of Mars because I fucking love that. It makes no sense and it's <laughs> so good. It looks like it was filmed on a high school stage. I know. Anyway. <laughs> but so messed wait, up. Wait, so no music of the heart fans in here? No. No. <laughs> I love that he did shit to make that movie happen, but no. Yeah. I think it's cute. It's forgettable, but it's cute. Gloria Estefan's in it. Doing stuff. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Act <Is> that... Acting! <laughs> Fun fact. When I was in Austin visiting Trace for Fantastic Fest, he made me watch a Gloria Estefan video. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was only three minutes long, though, right? That's true. It homages Rocky Horror. It's really fun. Okay, so any final thoughts on People Under the Stairs before we get into your game and then housekeeping? Because I yeah, we gotta say, wrap it up. Yeah, gotta wrap it up. Uh, okay, I will go first. I will say that this is far smarter than people give it credit for, and it's doing a much sharper political critique that is not subtext. It is fully text, and I think it's almost as, if not more so, politically resonant now than it was back in 1991. I, yeah, I think I think audiences are probably more ready to see it now. I mean, it, it suffers from the sort of 80s-ness of it all. But I think that if this movie were released today, it would be a huge hit. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. not this version of this movie, but like an updated version of this movie. Yeah, tackling the same kinds of themes and ideas. Yeah. I mean, cause all of them are relevant. All of them yeah. are immediate and, you know, present in every single day. Mm -hmm. I actually would... I mean, I know we touched on it, but I, I would like to see a remake of this. And I know people, you know, shit on remakes. And if you want to talk, hear about it, you can hear uh, hear Joe and I's thoughts on it. You can go to our Patreon because we talked about that in a minisode. But I think because times have changed, but at the same time, they have not changed. Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting to see what a remake of this would look like in 2020. Yeah. yeah. Particularly around, like, white people buying shit up and evicting people who can't afford to pay their rent and just turning it into luxury condos for other rich white people. Yeah. AKA the city. Sounds I kind of in. relevant. <laughs> Just a bit. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the same camp as you two. I love this movie. I wish we, I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything more to say about Wendy Roby, but I, I know, I don't think we gave her her due, but like she's perfection in this movie. Everything she does is glorious. And I wish that we would have seen more from her. Yeah. I mean, fuck, typecast the fuck out of her. Like, I, I wish she would have done more roles like this. <laughs> I mean, I will say, if people haven't seen her performance in Twin Peaks, it's yeah. not people's favorite character, but she is wackadoodle batshit insane mm -hmm. in that first season. Yeah. 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 Tons of fun. Well, what's our game, Joe? Okay, so we've actually kind of touched on it a couple yeah, of times. So I'm thinking about this idea of the tagline for this film is terrible. The poster for this film is terrible. The trailer for this film is terrible. <laughs> They're all kind of very misleading in terms of what the film actually is. So say this film was released as it is in our year of the Lord 2019. What would either the tagline, the poster, or the trailer look like? Hmm. Well... The, the thing with something like this, though, is like you can market it as like 
you know, oh, the people in this area, it's so scary. But if you go with the same tone, that's we're going to run into another situation where people, where people feel betrayed by the marketing because they're like, oh, I'm going to see this kind of sociopolitical horror comedy when I was marketed a movie about cannibals living under the stairs. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't market it as a cannibal movie no. and then deliver and then deliver this movie. I, I think it would almost have to be sold as a sort of campy Jordan horror Peele comedy. elevated kind of thing. Well, but. I'm trying to think of a good a good reference, like something that, although it's serious, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm intrigued because the thing that we have not talked about, and I feel like if people watch this, like contemporary audiences, if you watch this, you will probably feel like this is a race relations version of Don't Breathe. Oh, good call. Oh, yeah. It's more comedic, obviously, but really the premise is exactly the fucking same. Exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, no one's blind, but yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> My God, you're such a but dick. But it's pretty similar. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> like, even to the point where they get out and then kind of have to go back in. And and there's a, the, the same but with the dog. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. But Don't Breathe doesn't have that amazing sequence where the dog shoots out of the, out of the wall in the drawer across the, <laughs> kitchen, across the kitchen floor. Yes. And thankfully, People Under the Stairs does not have anything to do with a rapey serum full of yes, semen. <laughs> I yeah. like that plot development in that movie, but uh, I will leave that there. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah. That's a 5 out of 5 movie for me, just so you know. But anyway, so give this a 60-second trailer. That's not mm-hmm. footage, but more like voiceover and like maybe like a tour through the house or something like that. I would do the scene where Fool and Leroy first come in and they realize that they've been locked in and Fool starts to kind of freak out. And it's just like, what is happening? This house is not what it seems. I'm a fan of the trailers, like the It Chapter 2 trailer, where it's like, oh, basically one scene from the movie followed by like a Mm. supercut. I like that. Like, do that. That gets me want to see your movie, but doesn't spoil the whole fucking thing. Yeah, 100%. Do you reveal the Wendy Roby of it all? Well, I think you have to have a little glimpse, right? You have to give people a tease to let them anticipate that that's going to happen. No, you can have like, again, in your super cup, have one of her, like when when Alice steps on her foot at the end, but just have her like her audio of a go to hell. You know, it's over the top, but it's also threatening, but it's like, what's going on? But the quote unquote benefit of this potential remake would be it is a remake of a Wes Craven film, but it's not one that the mainstream really knows. So people want to... Mm-hmm. To seek it out, they could do that. But, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know, man. But, I, I, I mean, I would kill to see something, this remake. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carter, make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> make that your next project. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, cool. Yeah, before we announce what we're covering next week, Carter, what do you want to talk about? What can you talk about? I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a reason why you were unable to join us for good manners. <laughs> yes, there is a reason. I am I am in post production on a queer horror movie. Oh, it's queer! Very, Yay! very, very queer for Hulu's Into the Dark. Yes, ah! probably already said too much, but I will say that because it's exactly who I want watching this movie when it comes out. Yes. That's perfect. Okay, yeah. and we can leave that in, right? Like, like Into the Dark. Like, we just can't say more than that. We're good. I, I mean, I yeah. Please do. (laughs) But you can tell us when we might expect it? Uh, Sometime around the New Year's. Okay. Okay. That actually worked out really well then, Joe, because we can probably use it for our Patreon episode. Cool. Anyway, uh, well, that's awesome. Everyone, be on the lookout for Into the Dark. 
I've only seen two of them <laughs> out of like the 12 that have aired, uh, but my husband's been marathoning them all over the past two weeks, uh, and he's mostly liked most of them. So yeah, <laughs> that's not a ringing endorsement. I know, yeah. I know it sounds bad, but like, like there's actually some real. Uh, I saw the New Year, New Year, the Sapita call when I really liked that one a lot. I mean, it doesn't hurt that we love her. The thing that's interesting is that they're all completely different. So yes. I mean, they're yeah. entirely hit or miss depending on whose episode it is. I mean, like, Bloody Disgusting just did a ranking of them, too. And I remember, like, I think number two for one of them was, oh, maybe it was the Chelsea Stardust one. And that's one I've heard a lot of good things about, too. But, yeah, but that's the thing. is like, they're basically, it's just 12 movies. And because it's like, entirely different creative teams, directors, writers, all that jazz, like, I think it's just an even split of who's going to like which one. Yeah, yeah you never yeah. know what you're going to get. And if you don't like one particular style of subgenre, you may not like a particular episode. But that's also the power of that particular series is that... We're getting one a month, they're feature length, and they're completely unique each time. So you yeah. may discover a new classic, or you just wait 30 more days and yeah. you get another yeah. chance. Another, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. So yeah, we'll be on the lookout for that, and we'll obviously keep all of our listeners up to date on our uh, new Facebook group, because we started a Facebook group where people can mm. talk. That might be your best transition yet. Right? I know! <laughs> um, I'm about to do a really bad transition, though, because um, I, literally in the past 24 hours, if you're in Austin... I've been invited to go participate in a queer comedy show um, representing the podcast. Ooh. So, hey, October 25th at 7 o'clock at the Cold Town Theater, I'll be participating in the Queer Town Comedy Show. But then also that same fucking night, <laughs> I got invited to participate in some Austin Horror Podcast meetup where I guess we show up and we give snippets of things. That'll be at the Nomad Bar, but that's with a K in front of the Nomad. That's starting at 8, so I'm, like, running from, like, a, from bar to bar from, like, 7 to 8. It's going to be real fun. That just sounds like a Tuesday night for you. Yeah, but it's a Friday night, so I can get drunk. Um, so, if you're in Austin and you want to do that, go go there. If you want details, message me. I'm going to find out more as I go. But on that note, if you need to reach me on Twitter, you can reach me at... Look at, look at me fucking doing these transitions, Joe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, you can reach me at Trace Thurman. And I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. Oh, Carter, you haven't actually told people oh, how fuck. they can get a hold of you. Yeah, well, I'm not on Twitter. But you're on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram is the best. I'm I'm Carter Bedless Smith, which is my full name with middle name, B-E-D-L-O-E. And all the dead boys. <laughs> uh, yes, I was going to say, yeah. please check out all the dead boys. It's all underscore the underscore, you know, put yeah. underscores between yeah. it. But also your photography is because you work with some amazing people go check out his instagram all of his photography is so fucking awesome uh, mm-hmm. thank you mm-hmm. but yeah and if you're tweeting about us please use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweets or email us longer things at horrorqueers at gmail.com um if you have two seconds please leave us a review on itunes and if you want even more content please visit our patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers uh you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes that cover recent horror films like this month we're doing stephen king's in the tall grass i'm sorry vincent and natalie's adaptation of stephen king's in the tall grass stephen yep. king's and joe hill's in the tall grass motherfucker yep. <laughs> and zombie land 2 double tap but joe mm-hmm. what are we covering next week All right, so we only have two more weeks of camp left, but I'm very excited for this one. We are traveling back in time to our favorite year, 1999. We're going Dark Castle, baby. We are talking about the remake, (gasps) remake of House on Haunted Hill with Jeffrey Rush and my queen, Famke Jansen. I love her. Fucking love. She's your queen, really? (laughs) I... I, (laughs) I honestly love her. 
I have seen almost everything that she's done. And I always think that she delivers the goods. Okay. I agree. I've seen her in some poo, and she's at least decent in the poo. So mm-hmm. I love her. But yeah, I this movie and Dark Castle, like those early Dark Castle films, were a mainstay of my youth. So yeah. I have a very good connection. Not, not good, but I have a nice connection with this movie. I'm interested to see if it at all holds up, or maybe if it ever did. The first two acts do. <laughs> but we do have to contend with Chris Kattan. Yes, he's fine in it. But on that note, I think we can cross out the people under the stairs. Yes. Until the remake. Until, Until the, the remake. remake. <laughs> and when that happens, we'll have you back. Right. Uh, yes, and cross out horror queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew, horror centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.